right now on Matter of Fact. Poverty is not a choice. Nobody chooses to be poor. Millions of American families are struggling to provide for their children. We need food, we need, you know, clothes, we need our house. Is solving child poverty as simple as sending parents a monthly check? Then, the founding fathers wrote the U.S. mail into the Constitution. The history of the Postal Service is incredibly quaint and, and you know, full of Americana, you know. But is it also outmoded? The key to success for Ben Franklin's popular institution. Plus, when the world was at war, their romance was unthinkable and illegal. He approached her and said, you should know my name. I'm the man who's going to marry you. The story of an African-American nurse and a German POW who risked everything for love. And on one tragic night five years ago, America wept. There's still things that like, I saw and I witnessed that I never in a million years thought that my brain was gonna have to process that still play in there. The survivors of the Pulse nightclub shooting share their journey of healing. I'm Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. The checks aren't in the mail just yet, but starting on July 15th, monthly checks of up to $300 per child could become a lifeline for millions of American families. Unlike a year-end tax credit, this program sends direct payments to families each month. Those eligible will receive $3,600 per year for children under the age of six and $3,000 per year for older children. Roughly 39 million households are eligible. In places like New Mexico, this could be life-changing. There, one in four children are living in poverty compared to one in seven nationally. And parents are free to use the cash support in whatever way they think is best. 2020 was very stressful for me and my family. Like, you know, from working to not working, you know, kids in school, not in school. Like, it was very stressful. My name is Andrea Alvarado. I have three girls, Juliana, Liliana, Eliana, and we're also expecting another baby. Monthly expenses are tough for anyone. So my monthly expenses include my rent, my light gas, phone, car payment, and car insurance. I didn't really want to get on unemployment because I wanted to like, you know, provide for myself instead of relying on the government or whatever. Um, but at that point, um, being pregnant and high risk, I kind of had no choice in order to provide for my kids. For instance, like me not working, like if we get it like now in July, that would actually help to like, you know, okay, this is where I'm short, like on my rent, it's gonna go here. Like I gotta like divide the money into places that I know I'm gonna be short on. Um, so I think it's gonna help a lot. Having flexibility with money is helpful to me and my family. In the short term, I get to decide where this money goes. In the long term, this money will help me plan and save. But at this point, it's like, it's gonna go to what we really, really need, you know? And I think it'll be even more helpful for me to save a little bit of it because I am going to need a bigger car once I have this baby because <laughs> um, the car I have will not fit another car seat. Each family should, you know, make the decision on where their money is going to go to. Um, but I hope they choose wisely <laughs> on where it's going to go to. That's like the main goal, you know. 
Right now, families can depend on the payments for just one year, although President Biden says he wants to extend it through 2025. That is, of course, dependent on Congress. New Mexico State Representative Javier Martinez is an advocate for direct payments. He spoke to us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. The child tax credit is now going to be paid monthly. Why is that shift from annually to monthly so important, do you think? For families to be able to have a consistent income source month to month, they can budget, they can plan, uh, they can make the investments that they need to make in their families, in their children um, on a monthly basis. I see it as a precursor to a guaranteed basic income for families, which I think would be a game changer in how we address poverty in this country. Do you feel confident that there is, in fact, evidence that shows that this kind of a program can lift families out of poverty? So, um, you know, the, the Earned Income Tax Credit, which has been in the books at the federal level for a long time, this was actually a Gerald Ford idea, believe it or not. Um, it's one of the most proven poverty alleviation measures in the country. Now, with regard to cash assistance or, 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 or you know, guaranteed basic income, the, the research is coming out. You know, we saw what Mayor Tubbs did in the city of Stockton, California. Now we have the city of L.A. making transformative investments in guaranteed basic income. Um, I think that we will see, once that research is available, that, in fact, families have been uplifted in a very positive way and transformational way. In talking to Andrea, she says she's going to spend her money wisely, the monthly stipend that she gets. And part of the reason for that is she worries that if it's spent poorly, that when the time is up, it's going to revert back to what it was, an annual payment. Are you worried about that as well? Let's keep in mind, this is their money. These are taxpayer dollars that they've already paid into the system. They're just simply getting them back um, in, uh, through a different route. Um, and the evidence we've seen is families invest in their children, families invest in their homes, families invest in small businesses, families invest in our local economy. Uh, the notion of, of families not spending wisely just doesn't carry water with me. Poverty is not a choice. Nobody chooses to be poor. The programs of the past I don't think have worked. We've got to take a different approach, and I believe that these tax credits are the first step toward that guaranteed basic income uh, uh, philosophy that I think we all need to subscribe to. Javier Martinez is a New Mexico state representative. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Soledad. Appreciate your time. Next on Matter of Fact, you can only reach this town by boat or plane. I don't think that most people know what it's like out here. And only the U.S. Postal Service delivers. But what happens if the post office runs out of money? And later, an electric car racking up sales. One of its biggest markets is young professional women. Why do women find this EV Mini so attractive? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. An effort to modernize America's beloved post offices just might have enough bipartisan support for passage, something that hasn't happened in over a decade. The Postal Service Reform Act is intended to upgrade post office facilities and technology. We asked our special contributor, Joey Chen, to look into the post office's past and what might be in store for its future. You can go a long way on 55 cents to just about the farthest corner of the United States, Bethel, Alaska. It's not an island, but you can't get there by road because there isn't one. 
no roads lead to Bethel. So if you want anything delivered, it's usually going to be by plane. In this part of America, even a 55 cent first class letter is a lifeline. I don't think that most people know what it's like out here. Melanie Fredericks is a member of the native Yupik community. Up here, she knows internet service is not a given. Amazon trucks don't deliver. But this is America, too. And Frederick says it needs the connections only the post office delivers. Just like with anything else that connects us to each other and connects us to the rest of the world, the rest of the country, it's not okay to just cut us off. Another 55-cent stamp will take you 3,800 miles from Bethel, way down to Maryland's eastern shore, where I asked Sandy Sepp if she thinks her work is very much different from the post office up there. I'm going to say not. As a roll carrier, you're, you are the connection. Uh, we always used to say we were the post office on wheels. On her route, Sepp delivered that daily connection, the birth announcements and the bills, junk mail and vital prescriptions for nearly four decades until she retired this summer. 21601 Easton, but my route was Route 5 and I was Route 5 for 38 years. I never switched to another route. Like Sandy Sepp, the post office has a long history of community service. The very first postmaster general, Ben Franklin, created a network of roads along the Atlantic coast where you can still find old post roads today. By the early 1900s, Americans trusted the Postal Service so much that parents used parcel post to mail their children a practice the Postmaster General begged them to stop. The service has long provided opportunity. Today, nearly four in 10 workers are people of color, and a full 40% are women. The Postal Service consistently ranks as America's favorite federal agency. And despite its dire financial straits, $8.8 .8 billion in losses last year alone, some, like New Yorker writer Casey Sepp argue, we can't afford to lose the Postal Service. Is that really true? I think it's absolutely true. Sepp acknowledges her bias. Her mom is retired carrier Sandy Sepp. But she also points out that even the founding fathers understood the value of the Postal Service. You know, you say that, but sometimes history is just quaint. I mean. Yeah, sure, sure. And it's certainly true the history of the Postal Service is incredibly quaint and, and you know, full of Americana, you know. But is it also outmoded? No, absolutely not. I mean, look, I think that a lot of our lives have moved online, but not all of it. And, and the pandemic has been a fine example of that for a lot of people. Even during the pandemic, the Postal Service has delivered CDC safety guidelines, mail-in votes, and the 2020 census, along with all the usual mail. But the pandemic has cut into first class and junk mail, the USPS's major sources of revenue. Contrary to what many believe, taxpayers don't fund postal service operations. All those stamps and packages do. In fact, supporters argue if Congress would just lift the demands it put on the USPS to fund worker health care and retirement seven decades in advance, the postal service could even be profitable. But even if it weren't, we would still want it. Even if it weren't profitable, we would still want to be able to reach every American regardless of zip code which is what the Founding Fathers intended 245 years ago, to connect Americans from 99559 
to 21601 and beyond. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen on Maryland's Eastern Shore. Coming up on Matter of Fact, the World War II love story of an American nurse and a German prisoner of war that was more than just shocking. It was illegal. And later, it looks funny. It's not fast. It has a top speed of about 60 miles an hour. Why buyers are focused on how this EV Mini makes them feel. one in six newlyweds marry someone outside their race, and that's a steep rise since 1967 when the Supreme Court legalized interracial marriage in the landmark case Loving versus Virginia. That decision came down 54 years ago this weekend. But two decades before that, there was another forbidden love story that would test the boundaries of America's tolerance. Eleanor Powell was an African-American nurse during World War II. She was assigned to work at a German POW camp in Arizona. Frederick Albert, a soldier in Hitler's army, fell in love with Eleanor. Journalist and author Alexis Clark uncovered the story, and I sat down to talk with her about her book, Enemies in Love. It's so nice to have you with me. Thanks for having me. So how did they meet? They met in the mess hall um, at the prisoner of war camp. And Frederick was a cook at the time, and this was during one of the lunch or dinner. And so Eleanor enters, and Frederick said that it was like he was under a spell. He approached her and said, you should know my name. I'm the man who's going to marry you. Let's remember, Frederick is fighting in Hitler's army. Correct. And Eleanor is a black woman, and we're talking about the 1940s. Was Frederick not ideologically aligned with the Nazis? So he just was a soldier drafted like anyone else who had to be drafted. So he didn't hold those views. How did they grow their romance and their relationship while one is a POW and one is working under pretty not great conditions? He was kind and they basically started to fall in love when he volunteered in the hospital. And through their own flirtations, or sometimes he held classes, baking classes she would attend. And he made her feel very desirable and wanted. And they actually just fell in love and then would be together in secret. But apparently, word got out that he was seeing her. And he was punished severely, beaten. So that was the irony. It really wasn't about that he was being with an American. He was being with an African-American. Once the war ended, they were able to make their relationship, um, I'm struggling for the word, because it's not really official, because no, of course not. interracial marriage is, would be illegal until 1967. Correct. She becomes pregnant. And he's deported after the war ends, just like all the German um, POWs. They're sent back. And so she returns to her native town of Milton, Massachusetts, as an unwed mother, pregnant with a German prisoner of war's baby. But that was their plan because they knew he'd have a greater chance of being able to return to support his child. And that's exactly what happened. Eventually, they moved back to Germany. Yes, yes. Why? He was the son of a very prominent engineer who had a company. So he was being positioned and groomed to take over. And because they struggled for housing, to find jobs as a mixed-race couple, so they moved back to Germany in his parents' large, beautiful home and it was a terrible experience. I was gonna say, Eleanor was not welcomed by his family. 
I mean, they saw the black GIs who were, you know, in the occupation. But as far as this white German from a very wealthy family bringing home a, a black wife, I mean, it was just unheard of. The book is a great look at that chunk of time in American history. It's called Enemies in Love, a German POW, a black nurse, and an unlikely romance. Lexis Clark, so nice Thank to you have so you. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Next on Matter of Fact, survivors of the Pulse nightclub shooting honor the lives lost. I think about my friends. I think about, like, the fact that they passed and that I want to make them proud. Their journey to healing. Five years since the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, that killed 49 people. Our affiliate in Orlando, WESH 2, was at the scene on June 12th in 2016. They captured the anguish, and they followed some of the survivors, including Norman Cassiano Mujica. He was shot twice in the back and then suffered permanent nerve damage and PTSD and depression. There's still things that like I saw and I witnessed that I never in a million years thought that my brain was going to have to process that still play in there. I was in such a dark mental place that seeing where I am now, five years, and taking care of my mental health this year, it's like I sometimes have to tell myself, like, you know, give yourself a pat on the back. You're like, you're doing this. I think about my friends. I think about like the fact that they passed and that I want to make them proud. I want, I want them to be able, whoever they are, to be able to see, and I'm getting a little emotional, but for them to be able to see like that we, those of us that did survive, we, we deserved to survive and we're doing what we, what we can with it for them. So how will survivors keep moving forward? We invite you to a special streaming event that examines the journey to healing and the LGBTQ community's fight for the support services that many will need for years to come. Please join us for Life After Pulse at WESH.com. Still ahead, Made in China, the plug-in car in high demand. Finally, a story about a small car making a big statement. Meet the electric vehicle that is shocking its competition in China, the Hongguang Mini. Looks more like a golf cart than something you drive around town. The vehicle is a collaboration between two Chinese car makers and industry giant General Motors. It's affordable with the cheapest model selling for about $4,500. One of its biggest markets is young professional women who can customize their vehicles with decals and choose from 20 different paint jobs. The Mini EV has a range of 100 miles per charge. It only has one airbag for the driver, and it's kind of top-heavy, so it might tip over if you take a corner too fast. But it only has a top speed of 60 miles an hour, so maybe that won't be a problem. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about a program to end child poverty by sending parents a monthly check, the unique history of the U.S. Postal Service, the love story of an African-American nurse and a German POW that tested America's views on race and allegiance, and the journey to healing for the survivors of the Pulse nightclub shooting, just go to matteroffact.tv.
And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.